When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. Welcome to Parallax by Anker Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anker Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US Cardiology Review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, so we're in 2021 and, um, you know, we've um, had quite the journey at Parallax and I think just about the end of 2020, we aired the first patient episode, which, you know, I believe was very well received. And, you know, that was uh, Lindsay Davis, uh, you know, former Miss Ohio, who uh, discussed her journey with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And, you know, she's a patient of the Cleveland Clinic. Um, I have today with me another very special guest. She's another patient uh, at the Cleveland Clinic. And, um, you know, she was diagnosed with Epstein's anomaly. Uh, you know, we're going to learn more about, I mean, uh, you know, we have a, a cardiology audience here, but, uh, you know, someone who's listening, who, who's a patient, um, or who's, you know, not from uh, the medical background, you know, um, our, our guest is going to share her story, um, of, of her journey with Epstein's anomaly. Uh, so we're going to learn a lot more about it. Um, so, you know, uh, it's, it's great that, you know, Parallax has, has been, uh, given uh, the opportunity to to develop a platform not only for you know world class and and famous cardiologists but also our our patients and you know uh, you know people who we serve and people who we we work for um so you know without much further ado uh, welcome on the show Mallory Abbott Mallory thanks for doing this and and uh, I'm I'm so happy that we've been able to you know carve out time to to record this episode. Absolutely. I am very excited to be here. So Mallory, um, tell us about, um, you know, your, your condition and uh, when was the first time that you learned about uh, Epstein's anomaly? Well, I think for, for those of us who uh, are not from the medical background, maybe you want to, you know, describe, you know, what you know about Epstein's anomaly so that others can get educated. I know we have a large, uh, I mean, a large uh, listenership, uh, you know, of, of our of our podcast is uh, is from the cardiovascular medicine community, but for those who are not, how would you like to d- describe your your condition? 
So Epstein's anomaly is a tricuspid valve defect. So the valve between the right atrium and the right ventricle. Um, In my case, it just is very displaced, um, doesn't close properly. And there's um, leakage, which they rate on a one to four scale. Um, And when I was born, they found it pretty much right away because I turned blue. Um, I've got, you know, a four leakage. So I have a pretty severe case that was also accompanied by um, ASD, atrial septal defect, a hole between the two atria. So um, I didn't really need any surgical intervention at the time of birth. um, But as I grew, like when I hit puberty around 12 years old. Um, I, you know, got pretty, pretty sick and needed surgery at that time where they did a repair of the valve as well as the ASD. And that was the first time I needed surgical intervention, but there has been much more since. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, not sure how much of your early childhood you would remember, but uh, are there any vivid memories from, from your early childhood, you know, growing up to so when you you know you were a pubertal, did you experience any any symptoms or you know any impediments to how you know what what a normal childhood looks like? You know, it's interesting that you ask that because I was actually just writing last night, um, trying to kind of discover for myself when the first time I really noticed like a stamina issue, or um, you know, I I kind of described the way I feel especially when I'm exercising is just a lot of pain throughout my whole body, bones, muscles, joints, like, um, like my body just is not getting enough oxygenated blood to recover itself. So it's just screaming pain when I'm exercising. And I was a ballet dancer from the time I was three and looking back, I loved it. I love to dance. And I remember, like I remember being in class at seven years old, loving to dance and no seven-year-old puts themselves through that kind of pain. So I really don't think that I had symptoms at that young of an age because I wouldn't have done it. I would not have continued to dance if it was hurting me that badly. But by the time I was 11, 12, uh, it was, it was hard. I can remember, um, just being exhausted, winded. I can remember leaving dance classes, crying that I could not keep up with my peers. I was on a competitive team and, you know, going to dance competitions where you're dancing all day long was just, I I felt like I was dying. Um, and I did, I turned very, very blue at a dance competition around 12 years old. So we made an appointment with my cardiologist who I was already seeing, you know, once a year anyway. Um, and things just got really bad really quick. And that's when they scheduled the first surgery. So I guess probably around 10, 11, 12 is when the stamina issues and the pain started. So your first surgery was, was done where, where did you seek care for the very first operation? Um, So I was being treated from birth at MCO, which is now UTMC in Toledo. And when my cardiologist suggested that I needed surgery, he sent me to um, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And that was where I had my first two open heart surgeries. Okay. So at at University of Michigan, you know, which obviously is is a world-class center, um, you know, also a great training program, you know, both for cardiologists and, and cardiac surgeons. 
Um, so, so t- tell us about, tell us a little bit more about uh, how was your, you know, your experience with surgery. I mean, you know, at, at the time, I mean, you're, you're into, in, I'm assuming like, you know, just about teenage or approaching teenage years. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure you, you would have vivid memories from that experience or maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah, I do have some, um, I think it's very interesting what your brain does when you are a victim of intense trauma like that, because it almost, you know, protects itself by forgetting a lot. Um, so sometimes I feel like the memories I have are, are maybe just from pictures or, you know, stories that my parents and siblings tell me. Um, but I do know that going into it, you know, I had no idea what to expect. I was in the seventh grade um, and they just they just don't really they don't prepare you as well uh, mentally, I think, as maybe they could. And, you know, they do a much better job now. This was a decade and a half ago, um, but they did not. I had no idea that there was a chance that because of the bypass machine, I could suffer depression. Um, I had no idea the physical toll it was going to take on my body for a very long time. You know, in my head, I was, I can remember being at dance like three days before my surgery and just thinking in my head, oh, I'm going to come out of this surgery and I'm going to be fixed. I'm going to have so much stamina. I'm going to keep up with the rest of my peers. Um, I'm going to become like this great, you know, company dancer because of the surgery. And it was the opposite. Um, first of all, I had a very hard time with the surgery. I almost died several times. Um, my blood pressure was just plummeting left and right after surgery and recovery. I was in the hospital for almost a month, um, you know, losing all of that muscle tone I had built up. You know, I was dancing six nights a week up until this point. So at 12, I was a pretty extreme athlete and I just lost all that muscle mass being in the hospital. Um, My stamina got worse, which makes sense to me now at an older age, because obviously after a surgery like that, there's a lot of cardiac rehab that you need to go through. But I was not expecting that. So I think I took about six months off of dance, um, you know, also off of school. I was being homeschooled through that time. When I did finally go back to school, it was like for half days at first because I would just get so tired. I would need to sleep all day. Um, And then when I finally did go back to dance, I can remember trying to do like my first leap, uh, you know, like a big leap in the air that I'm, I used to be very good at, could get high straight legs and I could barely get off the ground. And I was like, oh, wow, that's different. Okay. Well, I have no muscle anymore. So it was very challenging and very trying mentally. Um, I went through a lot of depression after that severe depression. And then four years later, I was back in the hospital having another surgery. (laughs) So just as I was getting back to myself and recovered, it was time for another one. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was listening uh, to your description and, you know, it bothers me, you know, it, it bothers me that someone would have to go through that kind of depression and pain, not only physical pain, you know, but, but also emotional pain of just having had to go through, you know, a ma- major operation at, at such a young age. And, 
um, you know, all the repercussions it, it has, um, you know, on lives of, of, of kids. Um, so it's, you know, kudos to you to, to have pulled through all that you have pulled through. Um, so, so let me ask you what led to the second operation. Um, so I just really wasn't having much improvement with stamina, with the cyanosis. Um, and you know, I don't really remember back then what it was that just, that made them decide to do another one, but they, so in the second one, they repaired the valve again. And then they also did a bi-directional Glenn procedure, which I know a lot of people are not familiar with because when I bring it up, no one has any idea what that is. So during this procedure, they um, they basically redirected my blood flow from the upper veins of my body directly to my lungs rather than like my heart pumping the blood to the lungs first. So they did that as well as another valve repair. and. That did help my stamina for sure. Um, I actually did very well um, physically from the age of 16 right after that one up until I was about like 24, 25. Definitely not as well as, you know, a normal individual of that age, but I did much better. Um, However, that bidirectional Glenn caused severe migraines. Um, I had migraine headaches probably five days a week. I was again homeschooled for about a year and a half dealing with those. Um, but you know, in my opinion, it was a small price to pay for this stamina and endurance that it did give me because for the last several years of high school up until college and young adulthood, I was extremely active and the pain was much less. It had dissipated quite a bit and I could do a lot more than I ever had been able to. Um, and then when I was about 25 is when I went into heart failure and switched my care over to the Cleveland Clinic. And now I am waiting on a heart transplant. Describe to me uh, the, the day-to-day um, life of Mallory Abbott. So, you know, so high school, college, and, you know, you're, you're waiting on, on, on a heart transplant now. How does that, how, how does a day look for you, because you know, I think is it's it's important to to talk about this. I, I feel, or, or you know, may, maybe if you if you feel otherwise, other, otherwise, then you know, obviously you're gonna guide the conversation. But um, I I just think that it's important for uh, us as caregivers and, and physicians and cardiologists to to get to know um, you know how our patients' lives are impacted because of because of the the conditions that they have, I think it would add to our understanding of how it affects lives uh, and how it affects people and and how people have to sort of build their lives around their condition, which, you know, could be extremely challenging um, and, you know, just unrelenting. Um, so talk to us about that a little bit, because uh, I think that that would be very insightful for me personally, but also for our listenership. Okay. So let me, let me go back a couple years to when I first found out that I was in heart failure. Um, 
At the time, I was working a very physically demanding job, um, and I was just not feeling well at all. I could pretty much only work. So I would come home from work, and I would immediately go to bed. Um, You know, my self-care was just down the drain. Um, I couldn't do anything outside of that. And if I would have tried, I would not have, have had the energy to continue along with my career. Um, and at some point about a year and a half ago, I just decided, okay, enough is enough. I cannot work myself to death anymore. I was getting sicker by the day. Um, I couldn't eat. I was incredibly nauseated, flu-like symptoms every day, migraines every day. Um, you know, and then my stamina was just getting worse and worse by the minute. Um, so I, I decided to quit my job, stop working. And, you know, obviously I was very, very nervous about that. Um, I had been working full time in a very demanding job for a long time. And I, I loved it. I love to work, but I just made that decision for myself with, you know, this suggestion of my cardiologist and, um, couple months later, I had another open heart surgery. So this was about a year ago now, um, where they, they put a pig valve in as well as a pacemaker. Um, and after that surgery, I no longer had the daily migraines. It's that's so interesting to me. I hear all the time how open heart surgery really cures migraines and and some patients with congenital defects, which just blows my mind. So I was very thankful for that, that the migraines were gone. The nausea was gone. I was able to eat again and I definitely felt better, but the pig valve and the pacemaker have done nothing for my stamina and it is still just getting worse and worse. Um, which is why ultimately my cardiologist and I have decided that it's transplant time. So I'm going through all of those steps right now, which is a lot. So now what does my life look like today? Um, post surgery and no longer working. It's hard, but I think everybody, you know, everybody has their hardships and it's just about making yourself stronger than your pain. So I am fortunate enough to get as much sleep as I need, which is a lot. Um, 10, 12 hours. Um, I take naps almost every day. I have a very strict self-care routine um, that just makes me happy and calm. I don't drink any caffeine. I have an extremely strict diet. Um, And I just try to keep myself stress-free and happy despite everything but there is a lot of pain. You know, I wake up in the morning and my legs hurt because of the fluid that pools in your legs when you have right side heart failure. Um, so I have to elevate my legs and my bones just hurt because they're not getting enough oxygenated blood. Um, I wake up kind of swollen, like even in my face and in my hands, not just in my legs. And it takes me a while to get going in the morning. Um, And then I go to the gym. I take myself to the gym every day. 
almost every day, maybe more like six days a week. Um, and I get as good of a workout in as I can. Sometimes it's 15 minutes. Sometimes it's an hour. It really does depend on what I'm doing, but during those workouts, especially like leg day or cardio days, it is extremely painful, extremely challenging. Um, I get out of breath so quickly. I can barely do two or three minutes on an elliptical without needing to sit down and rest. Um, I box same thing, you know, maybe a minute or two boxing, and then I have to sit down and rest. So that's hard, especially, especially because my entire life I was an athlete and the older I get and the, the more and more my heart failure progresses, the harder it gets. Um, but you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Heart transplant is not guaranteed. It's a very rare thing. And if I do get a heart, I will be very, very lucky. Um, but it'll change my life. So I'm very excited about it. And I've just learned after 29 years of dealing with this to, you know, make my heart condition work for me, not against me. And it's really shaped who I've become. So, so that's very empowering for, for patients to hear, uh, Mallory. Um, so describe that to us, you know, your last sentence, you know, that you've, you've sort of engineered your heart condition to work for you. How, how does that, how does that look? in the life of Mallory Abbott, how, how does that translate into actionable item for other patients? Well, when I decided to quit working and I'm so fortunate that I was able to do so, it opened up a lot of free time and I'm a creative individual. So I just started writing a lot um, about what I've been through and I started gaining you know, a small social media following. And to my surprise, I guess I was quite inspiring to people. Um, and it just started to grow. And I had a good friend of mine convince me to compete to be on the cover of a magazine for uh, tattoo models because I'm covered in tattoos. And with this competition, uh, every, every competitor had to have kind of like a, like what they would do if they won, because there was obviously like a large monetary prize with, if, with winning the competition. So my thing was, uh, I wanted to start a nonprofit focused on people with, um, waiting on organ transplants or with other severe illnesses. Um, and I wanted to kind of open like a dance for wellness, uh, dance studio and I competed to be on the cover of this magazine and I didn't win, but I got really, really close. There were like 60,000 women in the competition and I was in the top three. So after that, I didn't even really like think much of it. And then it just like kept going and going and, you know, I got closer and closer to the top and I was just so empowered by the outreach that I did. I was, you know, I held a few organ donation awareness events in downtown Cleveland. Um, and it was so empowering that even though I did not get the cover, I just wanted to continue with what I was doing. So um, I started podcasting myself. I started blogging um, and just being more present on social media. And 
I get messages every day about how I've touched people's lives and how I've made some of their problems just so much easier to deal with. Um, for whatever reason, I've had, you know, other patients with congenital heart defects reach out to me, um, just saying that I've inspired them to really stop feeling so bad for themselves. And, and I guess like, that's what it's all about. I just, I used to feel so bad for myself. You know, I used to look at, uh, other athletes at dance or in the gym who were just so fit and they could just do cardio for an hour and I would be jealous and mad and just not understand and have this why me mantra. And I just was able to stop doing that because of the lives that I have touched in the last year. Um, and instead, I have a mantra of, you know, I understand why this is the path that I was put on. And I have no doubt that, you know, in the end, I will come out feeling much better and doing much better. So that that's so you've you've touched upon Mallory a, a topic which is very close to my heart and that is uh, when people f- face adversities in life um or you know when even when people you know when people come into your life and lives and then they they leave your lives or when you face any kind of adversity whether it's loss of a person or you know loss of a job or loss of um, loss of an ability, or you know any loss or any physical impairment or impediment, um, you know the the universe is is trying to put you on a path which you may not understand, and feel frustrated and jealous and um, just dejected, disappointed, you know whatever adjective you want to use, uh, but but I think um, at, at some point. Um, uh, yeah, and and I think you know it's it's very human to go through those emotions. I, I mean, I'm not trying to discount uh, or brush under the carpet those emotions. Those emotions are real. Um, but I, I do think that in the spiritual journey, uh, there is a switch that occurs, um, which you know, which is the beginning of the elevation journey, right? Because the it's like you hit rock bottom, and and that's where the universe wanted you to be. Um, and then the universe sort of sends you, um, uh, a, it's like, a, a transposition of great vessels, arterial switch operation. It sort of, it sort of sends you a switch and, and, and then the game switches and, and the elevation journey begins. So I, I want you to be more descriptive, uh, you know, as, as much as you want to be obviously, uh, but, you know, tell us the secret behind that switch that. Tell us um, how you how the YME mantra got transferred, or you know supplanted by, you know this path is for me and is working for me mantra because I think that is that is very important, and and that is where the game changes. Uh, you know at least that's how my that's how my perception is. I think I just woke up one day and didn't want to be a victim anymore. Um, I. <sighs> I wanted to become more than the sick girl. Um, I wanted people to look at me with a smile and just a proud look on their face instead of a look that just was like, oh, I feel so bad for her. Um, And I just decided one day to 
just stop thinking about and I don't I don't want it to seem like I never think about my heart condition and like it never affects me and I never get sad because I do. But I just wanted I wanted it to stop consuming my life. Um, there was there was a long time where I was unable to do anything. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't succeed going to college because I could not focus on studying because all I thought about was being sick. Um, and those, you know, the college, those were the good years with my health. Um, I, I took a job that was very distracting to my mind that just had my mind working so hard that I couldn't think about those things because it was all I did. And I would go home and just think about being sick because of the way my body felt. And it, that it just got exhausting. That got so exhausting. Um, so I just made the decision and it's a hard decision. It's something I still have to work for every day. Um, I'm a big fan of having a routine to keep yourself in a positive mindset, you know, starting with waking up in the morning and having the first thing I do not be touching my cell phone, but instead doing a little bit of yoga and you know, skincare routine, taking a hot shower, um, just to put my mind in a place of being thankful to be alive and thankful for myself rather than in a place of anxiety when you're, you know, connecting to a screen as soon as you wake up. Um, you know, I read a lot of books on just how to relax, how to be happy, how to change the way your brain thinks. Um, I meditate a lot. Um, I eat extremely healthy, which I think has a big, big role in brain function and brain health. Um, and I just put all of those things that I, that I read and that I've learned into practice as best I can. Um, and I've definitely, my brain has definitely changed drastically um in the last year and a half since I've made self-care and being happy my main focus uh, it's capable of things I never ever thought that it would be capable of um my memory is astonishing my cardiologist used to ask me you know if I suffered from brain fog and I would say yes and they attributed that to the heart failure and the lack of oxygen, but it was not, that was not the reason I had brain fog. It was because I was depressed and my brain wanted me to have brain fog. Um, I don't have it anymore at all. Um, and you know, I just, another thing that really keeps me feeling this way is just knowing that really what I'm going through is not that bad. It's hard, but it's not that bad. I'm lucky enough to live very close to, you know, one of the best hospitals in the world for what I have going on. I'm lucky enough to have a supportive family. Um, I'm lucky enough to have food and shelter. Um, there's a lot of people who don't have any of those things. Yeah, no, thank, thank you for saying all of that. Um, you know, gratitude um, is a muscle that all of us, you know, ought to practice on a daily basis. And I really, really liked what you said about having a routine. You know, I think 
anytime you're going through a challenging time in your life, I think it's it's extremely important, um, and also, you know, it's 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 part of the survival skill set, right? It's it's to start nurturing a routine, and um, you know, start adhering to that routine. Be very meticulous and and methodical about it, and, and stick to it, and just do the basic things very meticulously, you know, very correctly, and sort of start getting deep into them, you know. So, for example, for you. You know, I'm just reinforcing this for the listenership. So, you know, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, lessons from your journey would be, uh, you know, inculcating uh, an, an excellent routine for self-care, you know, which I think is important for all of us, right? You know, whether from, from any and every walk of life, any profession, you know, particularly physicians, you know, I think self-care is extremely important for us too, because, you know, it, we need to have our barometers tuned in because we need to be able to take care of. Uh, you know, our patients who, uh, you know, trust us and, and, and rely on us uh, in their vulnerable moments. And, you know, we have to be ready uh, to be able to um, deliver, you know, patient-centered, compassionate care for our patients, you know. And, and so the, I really liked what you said about the, the idea of a routine. And you threw in there, um, you know, a tip which is extremely, extremely useful. And that is not looking on your cell phone screen the first thing you get up in the morning. You know, it's it's, it's extremely disruptive to do that. You know, sort of ease yourself into the morning. You know, I think that is extremely important self-care lesson, uh, you know, which, you know, I've also started to imbibe, you know, over the past couple of years. Yeah, I um, it's one of the best changes that I made as well as not taking the cell phone to bed. Um you know, about an hour before I go to bed, I put it away for the night. Um, and that has helped a lot. I sleep better. Um, and you know, sleep is important for anyone, let alone someone in heart failure. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, so Mallory, um, so about the journey of patient empowerment, uh, I mean, um, and you know, this, I'm probably touching upon some of your nonprofit work and also the work uh, you've been doing over the past one year. Um, and, you know, pardon my ignorance, uh, you know, because that really is not my focus or area of expertise, you know, Epstein's anomaly, but um, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, there ought to be patient groups on Epstein's anomaly, right? There, there have to be. I'm sure that there are. I've never specifically like went online looking for a group, but I have found other patients with Epstein's anomaly just through like hashtags on Instagram. Um, it, it's a pretty, pretty rare condition. So it's not something I really see much of even when I am looking at those hashtags. Yeah. So, um, I I think a a good segue for for the podcast for us to, you know, talk a little bit about, uh, the pitfalls as well as the advantages of social media, right? Particularly platforms like, you know, Instagram and Twitter, um, you know, I, I may be sounding old when I say Facebook because none of the, none of the newer generation of, I mean, I, I consider myself a millennial. I mean, I was, um, you know, but I'm, I'm like the older generation millennial and now they're the newer generation millennials. And, you know, I, I think even, even, even Instagram is getting passe, but, uh, you know, re- regardless, uh, some, some of the newer platforms, I don't even know. I'm not, I, I'm not even existential on them. 
but you know, I want I wanted to ask this question to you, and that is, um, how important you think? Um, so you know, going back to the question, you know, both advantages and pitfalls. What would you say? Hmm. Okay, so I think that the big advantage to Instagram specifically um, is just being able to gain that audience, gain that audience. That way, when you are finally ready to you know, launch something physically, you have like a customer base already. They're there. You don't have to hand out flyers anymore and do hard marketing, um, which hard marketing is still a good thing to do. I did a lot of hard marketing when I was doing the Inked Magazine competition, um, but you don't have to do it anymore. You can just go on your computer and market all you need to there. So I think that it offers it offers kind of a sense of security when you're getting ready to, um, you know, launch a business or a nonprofit or whatever it might be, um, publish a book because you have that following who, you know, are going to respond well to it because they've been watching you grow it for so long. Um, and especially with where I'm at right now, you know, I'm, I'm very, very tired and I don't have a ton of energy to be doing a lot of extra stuff on top of, you know, what I already do and, and taking care of yourself as a full-time job when you have a condition like mine. So as far as starting my nonprofit goes, physically opening a dance studio, um, having students who are going to be relying on me to, you know, teach them how to deal with these illnesses um, in a healthy way. And, um, you know, looking up to me, I don't think that it's wise of me to do so right now because I need to really take care of myself. Um, so I'm kind of, I've decided that it's a good idea to wait on that part until I do get the transplant, which is hopefully right around the corner. Um, they're thinking maybe within a year or so. Um, so right now I've been focusing more on, growing the audience for that, putting the idea out there, making myself known. So when that day does come, um, I've already got people there. I've already got people interested who, who know this has been coming, who, who are excited about it and they want to be a part of it. Um, the downfalls to Instagram. Oh, well, there's the obvious one of comparing yourself to everyone on the platform. Um, there is the loss of in-person communication. Um, there's the fact that everything, every conversation starts to feel a bit monotonous. Um, in fact, the reason I started podcasting was because I was so tired of answering the same questions every day. Um, you know, I would get so many messages where people would just want me to explain to them what was wrong with me or how it felt. And I have no problem telling people that, but doing it 20 times a day to 20 different people was exhausting. So I, I created my first podcast episode, like just specifically about my condition. So that way, when people asked me that I could just say, Oh, you know, like it's a really in-depth thing to get into. Um, if you're interested, here's the link to my episode. Um, so I would say, yeah, the monotony and comparing yourself to others and the time it takes away from in-person interactions are the biggest downfalls. 
but you know, again, uh, Mallory, thanks, thanks again for you know coming over on the show. It's been it's been our, you know our pleasure to have you. Any closing remarks for for patients with you know congenital heart diseases or you know for patients with Epstein's anomaly? Uh, and you know, please do tell us if if anyone who's listening who then wants to follow you on Instagram, you know, do share your handle uh, on the show and uh, you know. It, or, you know, about your nonprofit, if there is a website or, you know, even, even our podcast, feel free to share it here. Let's see. Okay. Closing remarks for anyone suffering from a congenital heart condition or really any kind of, um, any kind of condition, just don't let it define you. Um, you define it, you have the power over it. Um, make self-care who you are it is the most important thing you can do for yourself um and learn to love your body even when it feels like it hates you um because that is what has really gotten me through it um if you do want to follow me on social social media i am uh mazzy mystical on instagram m-a-z-z-y mystical and I have my podcast and my blog and all that fun stuff linked right at the top of my profile. Um, yeah, so just, you know, be grateful for what you do have and stay positive. All right. Excellent. Excellent closing remarks. Uh, Mallory, thanks again for being on the show. It was great to have you. Take care. Thank you. You too. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.